So we are on the journey, and uh, we began in the city of destruction, and we find ourselves now at the House Beautiful. So we've come that far around, and there are more adventures to follow. The House Beautiful, or the Palace Beautiful, is a picture of the church. I, I spend every Saturday between 2 o'clock and 6.30, almost every Saturday of the year, doing weddings. So one, sometimes it's one wedding in that stretch, sometimes it's four weddings in that stretch. I have not yet seen a bride who is less than beautiful. Honestly. They look very different from one another, they dress differently from one another, but I've never seen one that is not beautiful. I suspect that there are times in the lives of my brides that they aren't as beautiful as they are when I see them. Uh, sometimes because I leave after we do the religious part and before they have the party part, and I come back the next week and the staff tell me that my lovely bride or her bridegroom were, got, got a little bit out of hand, let's say, last week. But I, I don't see that. And even though there may be times in these brides' lives that they're less than beautiful or not at their best, um, I don't see it. There's another bride, and we could spend a lot of time criticizing this bride and saying this bride um, just disappoints us. This bride just does things that are not proper for a bride. The bride I'm talking about is the church. The church is something that uh, today is uh, drawing a lot of criticism, um, a, a lot of, of scorn, really, where, where people are saying, yeah, the church, well, the church has done, and they will list the things that the church has done that are wrong things. So I want to set the record straight a little bit today, and I want to talk about the church in her beauty. I want to talk about how lovely the church is, and I want us to find ourselves maybe getting to a point where we say, the next time somebody criticizes the church, I'm going to just try to put a word in edgeways and say, yeah, but here are some other things that you might want to consider. So. The Palace Beautiful is the place of respite that, that Pilgrim Christian comes to, and he's had a difficult journey, and it is a place where he receives rest for his body and rest for his soul. And in many ways, that is exactly what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be a hospital. It's supposed to be a place of respite, a place of refuge, a place where there are people who love us and who care for us, who declare that they are family to us and really mean it. Today we're going to look at a passage um, that is one of the most profound teachings of the New Testament, and it's about the church. It's about the church at its best and why it can be at its best. Here's what Jesus prayed in what's called the high priestly prayer. It's the long prayer of John chapter 17. And here in part is what he says, I ask that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, 
that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That is a lovely piece of scripture, and yet it plums the depth of things that we don't know about and have a hard time figuring out. What is Jesus praying for when he prays that we might somehow or other be in a relationship with one another that is like the relationship that we can see between the Father, Son, and Spirit? And we've been talking about the, the book um, about this great dance in which the, the writer says that there is this dance in heaven. It's a dance between Father, Son, and Spirit. And there's a dance on earth, which is the dance between us as humankind. And that God has done something through Jesus by which he has allowed us to participate in the dance of the Trinity. And what Jesus is praying about here is that very thing where he's saying, what we had together, Father, I want them to experience. I want them to be one, just as we are one. And the world then will believe. I want to do some mental gymnastics with you today and try to make this couple of verses make some sense. So I'm going to change some words, and I'm going to scratch some things out, and I'm going to circle some other things. But, but let me just put out there that this, this is the story of the church at its best. When the church experiences the unity that is like the unity of the Trinity, the church is at its best, and it is most beautiful when we see it. I, I sat this week and I just mused over years and years of ministry, and that's what happens when you get old. You just remember. Sometimes you can't remember what you did this morning, but you remember long ago. And I thought back over some of the things that have made the church precious to me, there are many things that I could also list with you to critique the church. But there, there is something that is held out there by the Lord Jesus in this prayer that he brings to his Father that says the church can be something that is unlike anything that ha help happens in, in the midst of, of human relationships. So as I thought, thought about the church, I, I thought about a few things that just sort of loom large for me that have shown the church in all of its beauty. Many years ago, I was in Gabon, in the city of Libreville, and there is a, a river that, that flows out into the ocean in Libreville and goes all the way back up into the, the country. And it was Sunday, and I was staying in a guest house, and as I heard the, the, the roosters crowing, because... There is one thing that is heard everywhere in the world, never at the right time, but it's the crowing of a rooster. So as the roosters crowed, I heard drums. And I thought, that's interesting. I wonder what the drums are all about. And then about 10 minutes later, I heard some more drums. And they sounded the same, but I got the feeling that they were a little bit closer then. 10 minutes later, there were more drums, and they definitely were louder still. 
And then I began to get a little bit disconcerted. What do drums mean in Gamal on a Sunday? Probably there were a few more repetitions, two or three, and uh, by then the drums seemed as though they were right here. So my host came by to, to bring me toast and tea, and I said, I, I have a question for you. What are the drums? Ah, he said, the drums are calling people to church. What a lovely message to say the drums are calling people to church. So all the way down the river, village to village, the drums were speaking and calling people to gather together, to worship together, to learn together. When we made our way to church, I discovered that there were three other groups of people making their way similarly to church, but they were singing. Each of them was dressed in a different color, and yet they were singing the same songs, and although they were converging from three different points of origin, they were singing the same song at the same time. And just like the drums got louder as they got closer, so the singing of the choirs got louder as they drew closer and finally converged on this great big grass-covered thatch as there were hundreds of people that gathered together answering the call of the drums and answering the call of the singers as they called us to worship. And I remember I sat there. It was all in French. And I could barely make some of it out. I then tried to speak to them in French, and that, that I don't think they would remember that day very well. But I thought, this is, this is, this is the beauty of the church. There, there was nobody there that looked like you. It had nothing. It didn't look like this place at all. It was a different language. And yet there was something absolutely beautiful about the church when it came to be the church. Another thing that I've told you about is that we were going to Uganda um, every few months for several years. And we were leading a cohort of young pastors, pastors, guys in their 20s, who were pastors of, of barefoot churches um, way out in the villages along the Nile. And every time we would come, um, we would first of all sit down and they would have les nouvelles, would have the news, what has happened since we were last here. So as we began to talk this time, my friend Bob and I, um, two, two of the, the, the young pastors were waving at us and saying, we have something to share. And you have to be in an, an African sharing meeting because there's a lot of noise goes on, a lot of talking back that goes on. And as these two guys began to talk, uh, everybody else around the table is kind of going, mm hmm And we said, so where have you been since we were last here? And they said, we went to, to Rwanda. And so my friend Bob and I said, well, that's, how, how far away is that? How long did it take you to get there? It took a long time to get there. Why did you go there? Because you came here. We said, what? They said, well, you came here, so we thought we should go somewhere and bring the gospel. So my, my friend Bob, tongue-in-cheek, said, you're not even finished taking the course. You can't go take the gospel someplace. So we said, what, what happened? And they said 600 boy soldiers brought their guns and surrendered them because they believed in the forgiveness of Jesus. So I said to Bob, this, 
you, you say something next because I sure don't know what to say. You know, practically speaking, Bob said, what would you do with the guns? Well, uh, we took them to the authorities or whatever the equivalent was. And Bob said, and what did they do with them? They said, we don't want them either. So we buried them. So somewhere there is a trench that's got all kinds of guns in there. But the message of forgiveness had captured the hearts of boys who said we had to kill somebody before we were allowed to be in the army. And so we all have. And could Jesus forgive us? As I listened to those two characters, I thought, that this is the church. This is the power of the church. And it's the church going and being what it ought to be. The church is also something very simple. Like at Bramley Baptist Church, for some of our contingents from here, um, there were prayer times, and um, uh, one of our pastors was Bill Wright. Bill, a uh, godly, godly, godly older man who prayed at the drop of a hat. And he always prayed with his hands out like this and sincerely. And one time, there were lots of people came down to be prayed for, and Bill and Jesse were praying over people, and my daughter. Um, we had only come to the church, and my, my daughter was there for a first or second time, sitting up in the, the balcony. And after church, she said, Dad, when Pastor Bill and Jesse prayed for people, it made my heart sing. I thought, what a lovely expression that... She, she saw something that was happening there that made her heart sing. That's what the church is like when it loves one another, when it prays for one another. The church is also Sharon Fergus. She, there she is. I, don't listen. The church is Sharon who would do anything for anyone. She'd give you the shirt off her back. She helps and helps and helps some more. And even when she's not yelling at her daughter or granddaughter or everybody else in that whole Fergus clan, she's here being the church. So I think Jesus saw some of this and he said, when the church gets to be the church, the world will believe. Now, there is an incredible assumption and expectation so two times in this prayer jesus prayed that they will they will be one it's the only subject that he repeated he only paid prayed for one thing two times which was that we would be one and he said that when we are one father like we are one the world will believe that you've sent me simple as that right so Let's take this apart a little bit and see what he's talking about here. I ask, simple enough, this is his prayer, that they may all be one. Okay. When, when we put that word may in there, it's, it sort of sounds like a possibility, right? So this is a present subjunctive, and you go, oh, yeah, that. That explains it right there, doesn't it? No, the present subjunctive is not about a possibility. It's about a result. You, you use it when you mean to say, in order that. So what Jesus prays is this. I'm asking um, 
in order that they will be one. So, so follow that through, through the whole prayer, and every time you have may, get rid of the may and put will, because it is a result of Jesus praying and the Father answering his prayers, not a possibility, not an option. So the result of Jesus praying is that we will be one, um, that also we will be one in them, one in the Trinity. And the world, not might, but the world will believe that you sent me, the glory which you have given me, I've given to them, that they will be one. Just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they will be perfected in one so that the world will know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. That's the may. Look at the word one. I ask that they will be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also will be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me the glory you give have given me, I've given to them, that they will be one, just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they will be perfected into unity. It's not the word unity, it is simply the word one. So that the world will know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. This is beyond imagination. That somehow or other, in the same way that the Father and Son are one, we, with one another, are one. That's hard enough. But we're also in them, and they are in us. See, there's, there's the whole story of the incarnation. There's the whole story of God becoming flesh. He became one of us so that he could take us back with him as he continues in his incarnation as a human, as one of us, he goes back with us to the Father and says, they now can dance in the Trinity with the Father, with the Spirit, and with me. And so I'm praying, Father, that they will be one as we are one, you and me, I and you, us in them, them in us. And in the second little paragraph here, he says that they may be perfected into, and my version says unity. It, it's not unity. It's, it's the word one, the very same word. So it's not just that we will have a semblance of being on the same page. The same way that the Father and Son are one, we are invited to be one. Have a look around. Do you love the people around you? You better because you already are one with them. And the Father expects that the way we are one with one another is similar to the way that he, Father, Son, and Spirit, are one together. Wouldn't the Trinity be surprised at some of our lack of love and cohesion and teamwork and family if he were to come down here and have a good look around. He, he might be saying something like, seriously? That, that's the highest you can stretch for? That's the deepest you can go? You are already one, as the Father and I are one. Why don't you live into that more? 
And what is the relationship like between Father, Son, and Spirit? It is a relationship of eternal love and joy. Notably, it is a relationship of love. And Jesus and Paul and other writers give us all kinds of descriptions of this. Like 1 Corinthians 13. The Father and Son and Spirit love one another in the 1 Corinthians 13 terms. And we are one the same way. They are, they are one. And so why would we not be stretching into the dynamics of love that they already are? So we look at the various ways that this is all put together. We have the one that comes up over and over, the end that comes up over and over, the may that is not about a possibility, but it's about an, an order that. And we sort of back away from this prayer and ask, well, what's the context of that? John 12 is another prayer of the Son to the Father. It's the prayer of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's, he says, is, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And then there's an interesting part of that prayer where he says, glorify your name. And from heaven, the Father speaks. And he says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Wow. Uh, the people hanging around thought it was angels. Glorify your name. I have, and, and I will. How will the Father glorify his name? When we look back at the John 17 passage, um, where Jesus prays that they will be perfected into one, he uses the same family of verbs as what Jesus speaks from the cross when he calls out, it's finished. It's perfected. It's done. So in the garden, the son is in anguish over what it will cost them to get the transaction done. And the father says, I will glorify my name. And on the cross, Jesus doesn't call out a desperate, last, you know, drawn up strength, bit of strength, and say, it's finished, I'm done. He shouts it, and he says, it has been done. And the Father echoes from heaven, I have glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. And against the background of that, Jesus prays for something that he knows will be answered by the Father, but he knows demands his death on the cross to bring the power to it. So he prays about us. And he says, may the church be as beautiful as the church can be. May the church have her best day every day. May, may the church be, in fact, the New Testament says, like a bride adorned for her husband. Um, or here's the bride and her, her, her garments have been made white. She is beautiful. She is unspoiled. And she will be ushered into heaven to finally and fully enjoy the dance that we have between 
the Father, Son, and Spirit, Trinity, and his children, us, um, as we will have been perfected together to be one. What is that going to look like? So here's my pitch. Here is the conclusion to the sermon or the application for the sermon. We are once again this year going to join 40 acts through the season of Lent. I hope you catch on that we don't give up easily. We have brought this to your attention now for at least five years, I think. And many, many of you have participated. But we're still looking for the year when every single one of us signs on. And it's an easy ask. Honestly, it's an easy ask. But it is a season in which we all should look like the bride in her beauty. We all should look like the church on its best day. Which is doing what? Showing kindness. Acts of generosity. And we're going to encourage you to go sign up. We've signed up as an organization. You can go sign up by yourself. Um, we can help you sign up. Um, and it can be as simple as you can say, all I want to do is have the email come once a day and let me choose for myself whether I'm going to do the really easy thing, the little bit difficult, more difficult thing, or the hardest thing that is on deck for that day. That, and maybe I'll choose green every single day, but I'm going to try to do green every day. And if I get through 40 days being green, then I'll speak up and say, yeah, I did it, but I'm afraid I might not do it all the way. Don't worry. Sign up. Promise yourself that you're going to try to do green to start with. You can go all the way to the other end of that, and you can say, I want to be part of a small group of people who want to seriously do this through the season of Lent. If you have a Southside at Maine t-shirt, this is the time to wear it for 40 days. Don't even wash it. If you don't have one, ask Bethany, does she have any more? Could we get any more? Because we want people to be out there being the church on her best day. Do you want the church looks like on her best day? The church looks like somebody or some people together doing something kind, doing something generous, cleaning up a street, for goodness sake, and things much deeper and long-lasting than that. But I want us all to do it because I'm tired of the church taking a hit for all the stuff we get wrong. This is something we get right. We can get right. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing could be wrong with any of the things that we're going to do. One day, so Bethany's favorite day, we all know by now, is... Chocolate Tuesday. Chocolate Tuesday. Imagine, part of this whole thing is chocolate. Come on. What does it look like when the church is as beautiful as she can be? It looks like a town that says, what are those people doing? It looks like a town that asks, why are you doing this? And the answer is not, so you'll come to our church. Wrong answer. We're doing this because we want to be people of generosity and love because we're trying 
our heart is to follow Jesus as closely as we can. So that's why we, that's why we do it. We, we are South Sinai, Maine, but we are trying to be South Sinai, Maine on its best day, which is when we are showing kindness and love en masse. And who knows what will be the result of it? Who knows what you will do that you didn't believe you'd ever have the courage to do? And yet God can use it. He can just anoint it by his spirit, and he can make it something really powerful in someone's life. So it's, it, this is to you, okay? So please look at yourself and not anybody else. I'm asking you. I'm asking you to do this, to join me in doing this. If you say no, we're going to have to have coffee or something to work that out. And you can explain to me why in the world you would not want to be the bride on her best day. Jesus said, when they see our oneness, they will believe that the Father sent him. I don't, I don't get how those dots are connected, but he said it. And he said it with this present subjunctive thing that I'm arguing with you is not a possibility that maybe when people see the church being one, they might, re- they might at least you know, put that on the plus side of thinking whether Christianity is true or not. No. Jesus said, when they see us being one, they will believe in the Father. The result of that will be they will believe that he was sent by the Father. Whatever is in your strength to do to support the unity of the church around the world, do it. Find more reasons to be in fellowship with everybody else that is the church than reasons not to be together. We can sort out the arguments in heaven. I will have a seminar when I will give you all the right answers. It'll actually be a seminar where I say, could I please have life all over again? I don't think I got any answers right. But you know, so the church is good at separating from itself. The church is good about, you know, expelling people. The church is good about ostracizing people. The church is good about shaming people. It's not good at loving people and including people and celebrating being one. Mission Ontario with Billy Graham was one of the highlights of of my ministry in in church. And the thing that began that was something called a prayer summit. The prayer summit we held up at MBC, Muskoka Bible Conference. And there were probably 50 or 60 of us. We were all pastors in in the GTA. And Joe Aldrich was the the leader of the prayer summit. Joe was the president of Multnomah School of the Bible um, he had a, a chronic disease that took his life way, way, way too early. Um, he First of all, in the session that began the prayer summit, he said, I want you all to tell us who you are and what church you're from. And I, I winced at that a little bit. I thought, really, does that matter? But it took a long time to get around the whole circle. And then uh, Joel Aldrich said, now, let me ask a question of, of everybody. Who cares? And there was, there was like something descended upon us that said, we don't care. I ended up teaching an Alpha conference with a Roman Catholic priest. He was a Glasgow 
Roman Catholic. I'm a Belfast Protestant. And we got snowed in at the airport. We had hours. I think it was Sudbury or somewhere. And we had hours. And we went and we drank coffee and we made small talk. And then finally he looked at me and he said, why don't you ask a Catholic priest anything you've ever wanted to ask a priest? And I will ask a Baptist pastor anything I have ever wanted to ask a Baptist pastor. So we went at it. And at the end, he, he was the one who said, are, are we good? I said, yeah, I, I think we're good. He says, wait a minute. Rangers or Celtic? <laughs> so if, the only thing that would drive us apart was football. Right? Are we good? The church is good. The church has to stop fighting. The church has to stop separating and dividing and nuancing and it has to say we are to dance with one another actually just in a similar way that the Father, Son, and Spirit dance. That's calling us deeper, way deeper in our relationships with one another. It's saying there are conversations that we've been timid about that we ought to jump into. We can also argue till the cows come home. It's fine to argue. As long as at the end of the argument we can hug and say, we're not done yet, right? Carry on. That's all good. It is not good when the world sees the church dividing and seeming to hate itself and segregating itself. Because Jesus said, when they are one like we are, the world would believe that you sent me. 40 days of generosity is just you know, it's just beginners. But at least it's a way to say, let's be the church as beautiful as we can be, doing the things that we ought to be doing, that in fact the world believes we should be doing. Let's do it together. Let's do it with our T-shirts on. And let's say, we're doing this because we're trying to figure out what it means to live like Jesus, trying to follow him. I've decided to follow Jesus. And part of that is to try to be like him.